Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. And before I give you what's coming up on today's show, I'd like to welcome our 7,000 new listeners. That's 57,000 of you who are listening to us every Sunday on air. So thank you very much for all of the support uh, that we've received uh, for the show. And we love when you get in contact with us and you can do that on takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. But coming up on today's show, we have a few farmers and why they're taking to the streets across Europe. We'll be looking into the the effect of those protests right across Europe with Lisa O'Carroll from the Guardian newspaper. She's based in Brussels. And later in the show, Cynthia Omerku, who is an investigative journalist with the Financial Times. She'll be here with a special report that she's done about two big billionaire investors and their very lavish lifestyles. And then finally, I'll be asking if Ireland is now officially closed for big tech business. That's all coming up on today's show. So first off today, we're going to start with Lorcan Allen of the Business Post, who's been writing in recent times about the possibility that Ireland could be considered closed for business when it comes to a particular, I suppose, large tech investment sector. Lorcan, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks very much, Wendy. Now, Lorcan, we're going to get into a couple of articles that you've been writing about recently on various industry issues. But I just want to kick this off by contextualising everything. We've got a problem with power and energy, really, in this country. What What is it? Yeah, we, we certainly do. Um, and, and actually, when you talk to anyone in IDA Ireland, our power system was traditionally a strength of Ireland, that we always had a very stable power system, lots of it. And, you know, for big companies coming here to build manufacturing facilities, that was a key priority. Uh, what's happened over the last number of years to change that? Well, a number of things. Um, obviously, the, the economy has grown very strongly and demand for electricity has grown up, but it's electricity demand is pretty predictable. It grows at about... 2-3% a year um, but one thing that's really happened is that we've actually stopped sort of building new power plants in Ireland um, until maybe last year there wasn't a power plant built in Ireland for over a decade um, and so what's happening there well there was a bit of a failure of the auction system that the government runs to attract power companies to come in and build power plants, gas power plants or what have you uh, and what that really led to was a, a massive it kind of all sort of came together where the power system was suddenly very, very tight over the last number of years. And of course, it takes two or three years to build a power plant from scratch to get through planning, to finance it. Um, and suddenly the, co- the government or the country has been in a very, very tight power supply situation over the last number of years. It actually forced AirGrid and the energy regulator to go out and import emergency generators like a generator a diesel generator just on a huge scale these are there's diesel generators and gas generators the country's had to import just to keep the lights on for the mm. country and this is at a huge cost to the, the consumer like over a billion euro this is expected to cost Yeah so we're talking on a national level here about the the power supply that's available to everyone really to us as consumers and customers to business to hospitals to everyone it's that supply you mentioned AirGrid there and I was quite struck by the comments of Mark Foley, the chief executive of AirGrid, uh, a number of weeks ago about us being on a red list. Maybe just explain what he said or, or were you were you kind of taken, were you taken by, by his commentary how kind of strong it was or did that I, I, surprise you? I thought it was really telling uh, what Mark was saying. Um, he was essentially, I mean AirGrid, what it does is it handles the power grid. I mean, it connects the power supply with the demand. That's its sole function. It's a semi-state organisation. Um, 
as we've mentioned about that shortage of new power supply coming on, there isn't any power supply there. So AirGrid, uh, their CEO Mark Foley was essentially saying, we have not... Uh, connected any new large power uh, customers to the grid because we don't have supply. He said we're closed for business. That's quite, uh, it's quite extraordinary given what you said at the beginning, which is one of the big offerings from the IDA or Enterprise Ireland's point of view when we went out into the world is we're a strong, stable economy with <laughs> supply of energy. It is an extraordinary situation. This isn't the most... Uh, you know, it's not in the headlines as much as it should be this issue, I think. Um but I, behind closed doors, you would imagine IDA Ireland have to be extremely frustrated with what's happening because their ability to attract foreign investment is based on you know key uh, ingredients, I suppose, that the country has to offer. And when you don't have power, you know, a Pfizer, an Eli Lilly, a Microsoft, uh, an Amazon, they can't, they're not going to invest in this country. And equally for you know government as well, the, you know, they want to create jobs, they want to um, invigorate the economy. And with foreign investment now being turned away because we don't have enough power, it's not. It's a really bad position for the Irish country to be in. Um, you know, I, I don't think, because the investment, is, we can see the investment that does come in here, mm. but we do not see the investment that, that is lost. Yes, yeah. And I think that's why maybe it's easier to cover up, I suppose, what's happening and, and it's not getting as much attention as it probably should, I think. But one area, and we've spoken about this in the past, where it, it does get a bit of notice, and, and you've been writing about this uh, in recent times, is that a big tech sector, I suppose, and the data centres. Now, I know we're not allowed to call it a ban or a bar or even a moratorium, but maybe um, that does kind of um, symbolise in a very real way what isn't happening, if you like, the investment that could potentially be coming into us on things like, say, AI. I know you've been talking to yeah. some of the companies involved in this. Maybe talk us through what you've learned there. Yeah, so, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about data centres in Ireland over the last number of years. And a lot of the data centres that are in Ireland uh, already, they're here for, you know, cloud storage, all of those things that we've known about. But there's a new sort of boom to data center economy uh, around the world and that's been driven by artificial intelligence. So much talk about artificial intelligence but what powers artificial intelligence, the infrastructure behind that is actually data centers Um, and all of that investment needs to go in today for the AI revolution to take place tomorrow or over the coming years. Um, So you have the big tech companies like Amazon, like Microsoft, um, uh, like Google, uh, searching around the world now, where can we put our AI data centres? Mm. Ireland would have been top of that list uh, five years ago for these investments. And, and to give some context, these are enormous investments. You're talking 500 million to a billion euros for some of these things because it's very, very high tech infrastructure. Um, we're now being passed over for that. And it's back to what Mark Foley said, we're on this red list where yeah. they're not considering us and it's it's not getting attention. So what's the solution to this? Like, it, it, by the way, um, is there? Do you think those comments of Mark Bowley and the likes of the IDA being concerned about it is precipitating or, or forcing any action on this front? Well, there is some action going on at the minute. The energy regulator, the CRU, is um, has a consultation out at the minute for they're trying to develop a new large energy user policy. Um, I mean, the solution is to create more supply. And in times gone, uh, gone by, it would have been very simple. You just build quite a lot of new power plants 
i.e. gas plants or whatever fossil fuel at the time. We're not allowed to really do that anymore because of our climate targets. We've got to think differently. We've got to look at alternative sources um, of renewable energy. Uh, there's a lot of investment going into renewable energy in Ireland, but the problem with it, of we know it's intermittent, it isn't on all the time, which is what these energy users need. They need constant energy because they've got constant demand. Um, so there is a problem there. Um, we are so they're trying to create this new energy policy that is both uh, can can stimulate you know new power supply from different sources, but it has to be renewable as well. So mm. it's, a, it's a very tricky policy they're trying to create uh, uh, um, simultaneously. simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking with Lorcan Allen, who is the business editor at the Business Post. Um, so that's the supply side. And as you've mentioned there, they're trying to put together this very complicated, symbiotic sort of policy paper, which solves both problems at the same time as dealing with a transition towards a lower carbon society. But when you look at what's actually happening there, the solution to the problem is more renewable energy and more wind farms, which leads me on to the second item which you've been looking at recently is what has been happening with some of those large scale projects. I think there's four that you've been looking at in particular um, who've been waiting for two years for their approvals. What happened then? They've been hit with further delays uh, through legal challenges being taken against them. Um, yeah, like I mean, as you say, I mean, we have to build a lot more renewable energy. Uh, our planning system, uh, any developer out there will tell you just how difficult it is uh, and how risk, how much risk it's fraught with risk. Um, so the four projects I've written about recently, there's uh, they're all over the country. They're in Cork. Um, Tipperary, Roscommon and Waterford, really large scale projects, enough to p- uh, power the homes of like 270,000 homes around the country. Ma- it's huge, huge amount of extra power to come on board. Um, they and were a all, massive financial investment, I would imagine. Oh, tens of millions yeah. for each of them. Uh, and they were all granted planning permission just before Christmas, a cohort of them. There have been big delays. They finally got around to looking at some renewable energy projects and they approved a, lo- a lot of projects at one time. And within weeks, four of these projects have all been hit with judicial review, legal challenges. Um, and the developers confirmed all this to me and they're really left, you know, scratching their heads going, how long, much more could we have to wait? Bear in mind, these projects were first put into the planning system maybe over two years ago, and now they're looking at another year, potentially more in a protracted legal case as this all gets sorted out before they could even think about putting a shovel in the ground or or ordering the, the, the equipment. And as Wind Energy Ireland, the, the lobby group for... Um, the wind industry has said like all this does is just add cost uh, to the consumer uh, to the projects which gets passed on to the consumer so it's very difficult to build infrastructure in this mm. country because of, of many reasons but planning is certainly a big one and you know our government policy statement is to build build out huge renewable energy particularly wind uh, with solar um, uh, but it's a lot easier said than done, as you can see from that. And in practice, it's not happening. So if we just kind of lift ourselves up over this now, we've got a situation where we don't actually have the power grid that can sustain any new big tech investment, right? The solution to that is delivering the n- renewable energy, which is at best caught in a regulatory or legal bind for, what, three years now minimum, what effect, you're, you're the business editor of the Business Post, what effect is this having on 
huge corporate decisions that maybe elsewhere outside of Ireland making decisions about where they're locating their business now looking at Ireland to say look they don't have a secure energy supply we've got to bring our own energy in some cases and they're not really progressing at the rate they need to on the renewable front to solve that problem you know how long do you think that takes to filter down into having like really key effect on us not getting that FDI that we used to? It's, it's literally the, uh, the billion dollar question, I suppose. Um, we, we see how much uh, foreign investment is such a key part of our economy in Ireland. We rely on it so much. We've had a huge amount of success over the decades. Even up to recently, we've had announcements from Pfizer, Eli Lilly, um, that they're going to build massive pharmaceutical plants mm. here. Um but those won't be possible in the future if we do not sort this out really, really soon and give um, international companies certainty. Like when I speak to multinationals, the one thing that they like about Ireland is um, we offer a lot. Of, it's a business friendly environment. There's a lot of certainty in the policy. So if you look at Ireland from a policy perspective, we talk, you know, very strong renewable energy policy. Sounds great. Absolutely. There has been delivery. But What's kill, killing, is making it really difficult, I suppose, is the planning system, the delays. Um, and as I spoke to one um, of the companies in my article, uh, Equinex, they're a, a US, California-based data center operator. They do a lot of work around AI. They're a listed company, $80 billion, real scale. And their managing director's comment was, we won't be looking at Ireland until there's a more business-friendly environment. Mm. Like that's for a country that's an open economy and we've that's a damning comment really about where we are today for foreign investors if they are saying that about us so we really need to work on that I think uh, and to turn it around or else you know we, we will see that the, the, the foreign investment golden goose yeah. dry up I think that's a really important point because we do see ourselves as we're open for business, we're small open economy, we're English speaking, we're well-educated workforce. But the reality for a lot of these companies when they get into the nitty gritty is very different. So it's that experience that actually counts at the end of the day. It does, it does. And I mean, the IDA doesn't target, it doesn't try and get companies from every sector. It it you know, target specialist sectors that it thinks work well for Ireland and that we've got a, an advantage in. Pharmaceuticals has been one. We've had a huge advantage. Ireland is at the forefront of pharmaceutical and medtech uh, manufacturing and investment. Data, uh, tech, ICT, we've done really well there. But those two sectors require mm. a lot of power and mm. a lot of um, infrastructure to be built. And on both of those fronts, we don't have enough power and it's very difficult to build infrastructure. So, you know, we, we really have to a lot of work to do to get ourselves back in a favourable position, I suppose, for foreign investors. So let's just look finally, if we can, at the politics of this, really, because the Greens, in fairness, they have followed their own agenda Um on, on the transition policy, got very ambitious targets and a really good uh, and big bumper bill for themselves. But they're not actually progressing renewable energy as fast as many might have expected under, like they've only got maximum, what, another year in government, if even. Um, are you surprised by how they haven't managed to progress the practicalities of that renewable energy sector? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I suppose the the Greens obviously uh, party would have a huge uh, focus on renewable energy, but equally a big part of their um, 
their 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 supporters would be hugely in favour of the democratic nature of our planning system, which is allows people to take challenges against um, things that they don't think should be built. So it's catch twenty two for the yeah. party in many ways. I mean, they they have a lot of issues with the current planning bill that's going through the system and the reforms of it. So which is meant to sort of speed up all of this sort of stuff and clean up the planning system. So on the one hand, they want renewable energy, but they also want the planning system to be open to to. Yeah, uh, to, to challenges as well. Well, maybe all the policies there, it's just the, the practical implementation of them is, is still sadly lacking. But I actually do think this is a very interesting point. And also it's it's this energy issue is one of the reasons why we've got one of the most expensive electricity supplies in Europe for consumers and for business. Um, Lorcan, thanks very much for being with us today. That's very interesting. That was Lorcan Allen, business editor at the Business Post. Thank you very much. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. After the break, we'll be looking at why farmers are marching around Europe to make their point. Don't go anywhere. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, from France to Germany to Italy to Greece, the juggernaut of EU farmer protests just rolls on. Today, we're going to look at what they're about and we're going to look at what effect, if any, they are having on the EU and on individual member states. Lisa O'Carroll is from the Guardian newspaper and she joins me now from Brussels. Lisa, thank you very much for joining us today. Hello. Now, just to put some context on this, not everybody is um, either au fait or as interested as you and I are with the EU farm lobby, but it is a very powerful one in, in the context of the EU institutions. They've always been a significant lobby group right across Europe. Maybe just give us um, an idea about how powerful they are, how powerful they've been in the past and how much of the EU budget they actually account for. That's a very good point, Mandy. They account for 30% of the EU budget, about 300, 350 billion. Um, So they are probably one of the most important sectors across the EU and obviously very important in Ireland where agriculture is the backbone of um, not just rural life, but um, uh, the export economy. Um, Now, since I've been here in May... um, Farmer protests have been have have been sporadic, but they're all they have always been there in the background, especially as the kind of political narrative has have moved towards the right in parallel with the with the um, progress of the environmental mm. um, policy and lawmaking. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's an, a direct line and link between the environment, environmental um, regulation and lobby and the farming lobby. Mm. Um, yeah, we've already, look, we've seen these type of demonstrations, uh, you know, throughout the years the demonstrations are nearly as old as as the EU itself and I'm no stranger to being at those late night negotiations in EU when the final part of the package is is the the farming uh, package but as you say there are there are issues that are common right across Europe now to to the farming sector and to the agriculture sector one is climate but there are a number of other things that are affecting them particularly at the moment uh, in addition to those kind of um, what, what would you call them uh, as we transition to a more lower lower carbon society? What are the other issues that are affecting the the agricultural sector now? Yeah, I think it's it, it's correct to point to all the the links with the um, climate change legislation and targets that the EU and and most of the world have after COP twenty seven twenty eight. 
However, when you go out and talk to the farmers, that's not exactly what is top of their mind. Mm. What they're talking about are really everyday bread and butter issues, which is how much money do you have in your pocket? Mm. And they complain that their incomes are extremely low. They have banners such as, you know, uh, uh, ministers for a day, farmer for a life. Um, how they dream of being um, farmers from when they were kids and there was a, uh, you know, a family and children's demonstration last weekend here in Brussels. Um, and that they go into farming and find that it's a really, really tough, um, low margin business. And for that, you can possibly point to the pressure the supermarkets put and indeed consumers put um, on uh, supermarkets to lower prices, especially in the last two years during the cost of living crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. Mm. And in Brussels in particular, um, it was very interesting to see that one of the, the the things that farmers were complaining about was that one of the supermarket chains here was buying up land. Um, and uh, there was not just a worry about uh, a supermarket, a big giant, a bit like the Ryanair and, you know, buying the apartments in uh, near the airport story, which is that, you know, the supermarkets buying land and pushing up the price of land. Mm. Um it was about the, this idea that the supermarkets would go beyond what they do now, which is buy directly from a farmer or intermediary and become kind of landlord farmers. Mm. Um, so that's not something that's something I hadn't heard before. But very definitely on the street, it's not so much the you know the the climate change policy, the public policy, but the cost of living. It's about the burden of regulation and the administrative work that they that 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 is involved in everyday farming. Yeah. And you quote someone in an article that you wrote last week, Virgil, a farmer who was demonstrating. He said, this is about the anger of country people being treated by, like fools. We work like dogs. Our message is buy French produce, make that effort. So, yeah, it's a, I think sometimes we kind of get caught up in like, oh, farmers are protesting about uh, the Green Deal. And it's much, much broader than that. But I suppose um, when we look at like what they're protesting about, um, is it possible to, you know, encapsulate that and, and what they want to happen? Well, I, I think the difficulty is that in this narrative at the moment, there's two different levels of narrative, if you like. There's one at very high level political um, narrative, which is all about the policy mm. and uh, targets for 2030, for 2040 and beyond. That's one level. And the EU have moved on that. So this week they um, abandoned two policies. Um, one, one they said they would return to. Um, which was about the um, use of pesticides, um, which Ursula von der Leyen, the, the chief of the European Commission, said um, had led to, had polarised um, communities. Um, but the other one they dropped was um, a reference to a reduction for agriculture emissions, which includes methane from cattle. We all know about that in Ireland. Um, that was removed from a climate uh, change roadmap. But I don't think that they that, that those moves actually filtered down to um, farmers in rural communities, they may have have impact at the farming lobby level, mm. but on you know the family farmer or the small farmer who's raising sheep, cattle, arable um, land, whatever, that is not going to have an impact on them day to day. So their conversation is different to the one that's happening in Strasbourg mm. here in Commission. So what the EU has said and it has done is last September, Ursula von der Leyen possibly with an with an eye on how the right are now using the climate change and the environmental um, policies to, as a weapon in their own um, political campaigns. She set up this dialogue with the agricultural um, community, which met for the first time, I think, last week in Brussels, um, chaired by a German professor 
she's very erudite and she is now referencing that um, dialogue group um, in all her speeches in, in relation to agriculture, saying that she's listening, it's very important to listen, blah, blah. Mm. Don't forget, there's an election in June. So this counts. Yeah, they, they face a tricky balance, really, um, between caving into the, the lobby group, but also, um, I suppose, allowing those hard right parties who are in some cases um, hijacking these type of protests to kind of capitalise on both the farmers' grievances and also, um, as you say and mentioned there, the EU elections, which are coming up right across Europe. That's right. And um, uh, everybody knows about the, the rise of the right in France, in Germany, um, in Italy and in Spain. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the part, political groupings that is very, very strong in Brussels is one headed by by the German MEP, Manfred Weber, who have been very vocal about the climate change. And they almost collapsed what was called the nature restoration law back um, uh, at the beginning of summer last year. Um, it narrowly passed, but I think Ursula von der Leyen, who we think is going to seek a second five-year term here in Brussels as head of the commission, um, is, you know, the motivation for her changing or withdrawing some European commission proposals um, is with a, with, with a view to ma- maintaining um the 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 kind of the power of the center mm. and the, the center right political parties in the EU because they are terrified that the far right parties in France and Germany will um make uh big gains in the elections here in June. Mm. I thought said the comments of Maros Setrovic were were very interesting alluding back to that decision that you referred to from 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 last week um which may, as you say, be effective at a policy and lobby group level, but not practically at a, at a grassroots level, if you forgive the pun. He was actually citing some of the weather events um, that have happened recently across Europe as a kind of clear demonstration that climate policies and the transition to a lower carbon society is not something we need to think about in the future, but that farmers need to deal with now. And almost, if you like using that as a way to say, look, this is why we need to uh, assuage the farmers now. Yeah, and I think, he, he, you know, he, he reminded everybody of, of the extreme temperatures that we had last summer. Um, do you remember, I think it was 40 plus down in Italy. Mm. Um, we had wildfires in Spain, wildfires in Greece. Um, he also referred to um, water levels and reservoirs, even at this time of year in the middle of winter in Spain, um, down to uh, 20% in some places in Andalusia and down to 4% in one reservoir. That's very worrying. Um, I had a look at that after his speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Spain is on, has uh, the worst drought on record. Sorry, not on record, in 50 years. So, um, you know, climate change is, is, is very much in the background. But the irony is that if climate change is a priority and you have to mitigate against climate change, then you have to bring introduce policies that are going to save mm. farmers. And that's the conundrum. Yeah. How do you persuade farmers that this is in their best interests? Yeah. Um, and as you say, they are, they're still a very significant part of both the budget. And as a lobby group, I guess they're still pretty influential. Or, or do you think they are? Is their influence waning? Clearly, they're inf- influential. It, it's interesting to see, you know, how quickly there were, you know, three, four different things that happened in the last two weeks. 
um, in relation to that are completely linked to the to the protests. So, as you you mentioned there, Marusevkovich um, announced uh, a year's delay in new um, set aside rules, mm. which would have required farmers to plant nitrogen fixing um, plants like clover on four percent of their land. That was due to come in this year, but they're not going to in- introduce it until next year. Um, uh, you know, that would mean something for some farmers, um, arable, arable farmer, farming. And, and this is this is a way to sort of what regenerate that land, regenerate the soil. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. A way, way, it's a way of keeping the soil healthy. And there are already set aside rules um, that require farmers to keep that land covered during the winter. So they explained, for instance, it could be with straw or in the north and Scandinavian countries, it could be with snow. Mm-hmm. It's about covering the land. So they were, were moving further to ensure that there was nitrogen fixing plants that went in there. It basically improved the nutrient level in the soil. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson and I'm speaking with Lisa O'Carroll from the Guardian newspaper in Brussels. And we're talking about the recent protests across Europe uh, from the agriculture and farmer community. Uh, Lisa, just we, we've been talking about the farming um, and the agriculture sector, but I suppose I would be interested in your analysis of the dynamic in Europe at the moment between um the European elections that are coming in June and how the far right are using issues like farming, like immigration um, to kind of really further their cause. Where do you see them being most potent? All the, all the groups now are using farming. Um, and migration is the other big thing, mm. of course. Um, so the far right parties are very clear. Um, AFD, I think, have, uh, you know, alternative for Deutschland in Germany, um, have shocked the German um, public um, with these secret plans for uh, what they called re-migration, which was forcing people, some of whom have German passports and were born in Germany, but of um, foreign, uh, for what a, a want of a better uh, phrase, um, heritage. Um, very extreme, uh, very quickly, very, um, I suppose, getting a lot of traction in a very short space of time. Yeah, very extreme. And they were polling, I think, around 24% of the electorate before this and 30% in some of the former East German um, uh, states within uh, Greater Germany. Um, I think that has dropped more recently. But this week in France, we saw a very interesting manoeuvre by the um, estranged niece of Marie Le Pen, who um, is... uh, um, looking very strong in the polls nationally as well and is softening some of her policies, just like Georgia Maloney has done in, in Italy to appeal to a wider voter base. Mm-hmm. But what happened this week is that her estranged niece, who is part of an even more right-wing party, got into a political group within the European Parliament, which was um, originally linked with David Cameron and the Tories, um, but is now home to um, the PIS party in Poland, likely to be home to Viktor Orban, Hungary, etc. So what people are saying now is that this is very interesting, that um, it will make it difficult for the more centre and centre-right parties and the liberal parties to include this group or maybe it'll be more difficult to exclude them. Right, yeah, to keep them out is more difficult than yeah. holding the centre. Yeah, yeah. I, I look, the whole thing is is absolutely fascinating, Lisa, and it's something we'll definitely return to as we head into those European elections. But for now, we, we'll have to leave it there. That was Lisa O'Carroll from The Guardian newspaper. Lisa, thank you very much for giving us your time today.
This is News Talks Taking Stock. After the break, we'll speak to Cynthia Omaruku, who is an investigative journalist with the Financial Times, about two extraordinary billionaires who won and lost it all. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now for our final item today, we're going to look at a story that involves lavish dinners in Monaco, the ownership of a German football club and a wedding where Lionel Richie and Lenny Kravis were the wedding band. And we're also going to look at court cases that involved billions and billions of euros. The names Lars Windhorst and Bruno Kreitz may not be household ones, but they are legendary in the business world in the sense that they were involved in investment of a huge scale that went spectacularly wrong. Well, Cynthia Omerku is an investigative reporter with the Financial Times and she and her colleague Robert Smith have been writing about this pair and she joins me now. Cynthia, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for having us. Cynthia, like uh, this story is quite epic and it's a very long one. So we might just start off with the two characters, if you wouldn't mind explaining in, in as brief a way as you can who Lars and Bruno actually are. Yeah, so, so on one hand, we have uh, Lars Windhorst, who's a German businessman. He, is a teenager, set up a, an electronics business from his garage. He'd always wanted to be a businessman. And, um, you know, he sort of rose up the ranks and was hailed as the German Bill Gates from a, very, you know, from a sort of teenage age. And he was really championed by former Chancellor Helmut Kohl, who even took him on a trip to Asia as part of a government, a government uh, delegation um, back in the 90s. And he's an incredible character and, a, I mean, a flamboyant and very, very interesting man. Um, and he's experienced spectacular ups and downs in his business career. He's even, you know, had a brush with death that he survived, uh, you know, he survived a plane crash back in 2007. But he's also had, you know, very big, huge difficulties in his business um, career, including, you know, personal bankruptcy, um, a whole bunch of companies that collapsed. And then to sort of, you know, the big pinnacle, I guess, was he was accused of fraud, um, but he wasn't convicted of fraud. He, he got a suspended jail sentence um, for um, breach of trust. And so he sort of was a very well, well-known person in Germany, but he set up shop in London um, back in the you know, late noughties, um, early uh, teens. And that's how he got uh, onto my radar, I guess. And that's also how he met up with the man, the other man in, in this story, Bruno Kreitz. Maybe he'll just that's explain to us a little bit about... Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So Bruno Kast is a French uh, asset manager. You know, they, him and a number of colleagues uh, the main one being uh, another man called uh, Vincent Chaillet. They set up, um, founded this, an asset management company called H2O. And it really was, you know, we're talking about superstars of the European asset management uh, industry. And the name H2O comes from the principle that their investment should be transparent and also liquid. And, you know, in other words, that um, these investments should be easily transformable back to cash or sold on. Um, they have had absolutely fantastic returns, um, and they they are quite also very incredible characters. I think Bruno Kraft um, came from quite humble beginnings and really made his way up the chain uh, to, um, you know, become yeah like the a bond maven, a superstar of European asset management, and together 
uh, Vincent Chaillet and, and, um, and Bruno and, and that company, of course, um, generated extremely uh, great returns for their investors. Mm. Now, now, you mentioned um, the name of the company, H2O, and mm-hmm. it was a reference to liquidity, which is to become a very important part of this story as we move forward. But if we're just looking at the two gentlemen, Lars and Bruno here now, and the intersection of when they met, initially, uh, Mr. Kreitz uh, wasn't in exactly enamoured uh, by by um, the, the, the suave businessman. Um, it it was his partner indeed who kind of uh, fell in with him but they did strike up quite a significant friendship as well as a partnership didn't they well i guess what's interesting here is they you know especially craft i guess would maybe disagree with that um i think it's um you know the 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 question is how you know how did this color you know their relationship how did it color um, you know the investment. Mm. So, in terms of the friendship, I think you know we're, we've seen through you know long long research with lots and lots of different sources and documents. We've definitely seen that they they went way beyond what we would you know we would term a professional relationship. Um, and you know Bruno's always said Bruno Kraft has always said um, you know to the uh, financial regulator and others that. And, and in front of um, investors, when he was talking about the investments that he had made, that it was a purely business relationship. Mm. Um, we, you know, saw yeah, uh, definitely something something more, much different, which we thought was obviously, as as we've written in our article, you know, we believe, um, you know, was 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 pretty important in the in that relationship. Um, Vincent Chaillet, he also, you know, struck up um, a, a, an, an interesting relationship with with Lars. The, the fund had actually previously involved, um, previously invested in some securities that were linked to Lars, but they weren't Lars as businesses, as it were. Um, and yeah, so I think I, I think there's a question as to, you know, how close a business relationship. Can you have, and where is the, the you know where is the point where it becomes a a true friendship, mm. and and then there's another point is at which point does that friendship or that relationship affect how you conduct business and what investments you make? Well, maybe let's look at the investments the investments themselves um, and where it all started to go wrong and where this kind of um, partnership, if you like, um, you know, started to deconstruct. So I think it was 2015 to 2018, they they were um, locked in kind of very different investments. So maybe take us through some of the figures that H2O were investing in. Well, they still are. They still are. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, we, we got... You know, we were interested in, in Windhorst as a businessman um, from quite some time. And, you know, in 2017, you know, we kept looking at who was investing with him. And we have to remember this was a an era of low interest rates. And Lars's securities were, were offering, you know, between, well, in, in, the, in the whole market around 10% returns. Mm. These were bonds and there were you know, hundreds of millions worth of bonds. In fact, you know, at one point he had several billion in bonds and they were offering very great returns. So we kept an eye out for years to figure out who was investing and how much were they investing. And so 
even back in 2017, our eye was cast H2O and we thought something's up. That's quite interesting that uh, they're a USITS fund, which is a fund um, that is very highly regulated. These are highly regulated funds and they're open to retail investors. And as I said before, these are supposed to be accessible to investors to take out, um, you know, to, to make liquid whenever they want. So highly regulated funds. And we were looking at this for years. And by 2019, we were quite struck at the amount. Uh, I remember poring over spreadsheets and, and, and constructing spreadsheets of all their investments. And we got to about one and a half billion euros that were in in these um H2O funds uh, linked to, to Windhorse. Mm. And it's at that point that we wrote a story um, which laid all of this out. And I guess it had a huge impact in that uh, investors had clearly not been aware of all the links and, and, the, and the level of investment, because I think no one would kind of bat an eyelid if it would be, you know, a couple of, a few million, uh, that wouldn't have been an issue. But it was the level which then caused a lot of investors to pull out their money and it drew the attention of the regulator. Um, but what really struck us in the, in the uh, you know, as we were reporting this story, now in retrospect, as we, you know, we kept asking ourselves, how did this all come about? Mm. And at which point did they realize things were maybe not quite uh, smooth sailing? And we were incredibly surprised when we realized just how early on the, the, the deals weren't getting consumed or, or they were having trouble, um, you know, getting, getting uh, pay, you know, getting transactions to clear when they were supposed to clear. And that happened pretty much from the very beginning. And, and I think that was the incredible thing that we found. Yeah. And, and that's actually the point of all of this, because um, when you look at how savvy um, uh, he was as an investor, it's kind of hard to then square the, cir- square, square the circle, if you don't mind, uh, to, to how they continued with this type of investment. And that's why I suppose I kind of took from the article that there was something more about the relationship between Lars and Bruno that made him continue? Or do you think they were kindred spirits in that um, they looked at the markets in an unconventional way, maybe um, counterintuitive to what everybody else would do? Sure, I think there's an element of that. And ultimately, only they know. I mean, we as reporters can only, you know, do as much research as we can and, Mm. and look at it from lots of different perspectives. And and, and go on the evidence that we managed to dig out, as it were, and, and speak to the people. Ultimately, only the two of them truly know uh, the reasons, and maybe even they don't know. Um, I do think that they, in some ways, were kindred spirits. I think there was an element of doubling down, which, you know, Bruno Kraft is very, you know, I guess is part of his trademark and is, has, has in the past really served him well, ultimately, in that he, um, as he ha- himself um, has been saying, you know, you know, he's, he's, they're threading uh, where other people don't go, mm. and it has worked out for them. I and uh, to be clear, um, Bruno Kraft has always maintained that, um, and and H two O have always maintained that what the decisions that they took, they took in um, with the spirit of doing the right thing for their investors. And look, it's possible that that's exactly what they thought or convinced themselves that they were doing because there are some investments, particularly one investment that could have been the golden ticket. Mm. Um, 
you know, amongst a lot of, uh, you know, investments where there was really clearly issues with due diligence um, uh, as the um, the financial regulator has has ruled. Um, and I think the, the the possibility and this hope that maybe one of these investments would actually pay off has put them in a quite an interesting dilemma. I mean, one of them was a robotics company, medical robotics company, which a lot of advisors thought could actually make, uh, you know, make a successful IPO or could actually lead to a good, you know, a good payoff. Mm. Um, and the hope that that could happen could be, you know, part of the story that kept kept them uh, sort of on the hook, as it were. Mm. Um, and there's obviously also the personalities. I mean, I cannot stress enough how interesting all these people are and how charming and and yeah, incredible characters they are and how they interacted with each other. Yeah, and you know, it's very interesting you say you got drawn into this initially by looking at Windhurst. I mean, he had quite the regard for himself, you know, wanting to build a Windhurst tower, his location on Savile Row, the super yachts um, yeah. and the audaciousness of when all the investments were tanking, then to, to kind of demand things like, I think it was a 99 million euro investment support for uh a, a German soccer club. So, I mean, that just gives you some idea of of the breadth of the man and, and the character of him. Yes, absolutely. And he's um, a very polite guy. And, you know, we've talked to so many people, um, you know, in his uh, orbit. And, uh, you know, he by only means is, um, and we've met him, of course, ourselves. And he's very very charming and and is an incredible incredible person. And what about uh, Kretz? Uh, what happened to him in the end and to the company? As you said, they're they're still operating. Oh, yes, 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 indeed. So um, Kast was um, uh, so the firm, uh, uh, the 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 French financial watchdog um, uh, imposed a seventy five million uh, euro fine on the on H two O. They also Im- imposed fines on. Chaye and Kast uh, personally, so 15 million for Kast and and 5 million for Cha- sorry 3 million um, so 3 million for Chaye and uh, they also banned um, so imposed a five year ban for uh, Bruno Kast for managing a fund. So he took on another role. Um, he's now become a corporate and market strategy director. And Vincent Chaye remains as chief investment uh, officer, and they continue to to operate their business. I mean, when we first started writing about them, they had 30 billion, more than 30 billion assets under management. They have now roughly, I believe, around um, 11 billion. <clears throat> and they have uh, still, you know, people who really believe in them and believe in their investment strategy. Uh, in fact, the funds um, were split out back in 2020 and, and after the regulator raised concerns of the valuation of of these, um, you know, of the, the, the assets within those funds. And they split out uh, sort of like a bad bank, uh, good bank. They split out some of the uh, assets, uh, the, the Windhorse-related assets into a separate fund uh, or into separate funds and then closed them off to redemptions, which means that the investors can't touch them. But the other funds, i.e. The, the strategy that they originally always pursued, which is a macro uh, strategy, and so they're making 
bets on government bonds and currencies, and they're doing very well in that. Still, mm. they've got very good returns. Well, which is why you know they still have people who really truly believe in them. Well, they they both seem like the ultimate survivors. So I'm sure it's not the last we've heard from either of them. It's a fascinating story. It's still there in the Financial Times. It's a long read, but very very worthwhile. Uh, Cynthia, thank you so much oh, for taking. We've left out. We've left out uh, <laughs> so much that was even more more intriguing. Absol- <laughs> absolutely. But it is all there if, if you want to catch the rest of it. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. That was sure, Cynthia sure. Omurku from the Financial Times. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Just a reminder that while we're on air at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks as always to all of today's guests for their time and their valuable insights. Thanks also to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo Silva-Scott on sound. Any comments on today's items or any ideas for another show, please email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton Savage is coming up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.